Well, it's good to be with you this morning. And uh, for those of you who might be new here to Sojourn, let me introduce myself. Uh, my name is Jim Day, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And I find it a real privilege when I get a chance just to stand before you all and to be able to share God's Word. Because God's Word, uh, like it's already been said, is a lamp into our feet, and it's a light into our path, and it leads us. Uh, to live righteous lives unto our Lord. And so that's what we want to see today. We want to see God's Word and see what it has to say to us this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 33. And uh, we're going to start there. But our focus, our main focus will be chapter 34. Uh, Dylan left me verses 18 through 20 because it... It, it sets up what we're going to see in chapter 34 in a tremendous way. Because what we're going to see is that the decision that Jacob makes in chapter 33 is going to lead him and his family in a trajectory that will affect them for the rest of their lives. And so... I want us to pray this morning, and I want us to ask the Lord just to speak to us. Would you ask Him to speak to you directly? Speak to you where you need to be spoken to, because God can do that. He is a God who knows where we are at, what we need, and what we need to hear. And so let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, this morning... As we gather this morning as believers, and perhaps there's some here who don't believe in Christ, who have never given their lives to Christ. Lord, you know where each one, are at, each one of us are at in our lives. You know the struggles. You know the heartache. You know the pain. You know the victories that we have. And God, we don't want to hide behind any pretense this morning, but we want to, to just ask you to speak to us where we're at. Speak to us. And speak to us where we need to, what we need to hear. Change us where we need to change. God, may you have your way with us. And we will be careful to give you all the glory because you are worthy of it. In Christ's name, amen. And so, last week, Dylan pointed out to us that Jacob had crossed over into the promised land. And the last thing we saw about Jacob was that he had met with Esau. Esau and Jacob had embraced. They had exchanged, I wouldn't call them pleasantries, but they, they exchanged emotion. They kissed, they embraced, they reconciled with each other. And then we see that Esau tried to encourage Jacob to come along with him back to Seir. But Jacob, whether politely or whether however you want to look at it, Jacob refused to go. And Jacob and his clan, they journeyed on to Succoth, where he built a house, he built some stalls for his livestock. And that's where we left Jacob the last time we see him. And so the story picks back up in Genesis 33, and starting in verse 18. And notice what it says. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came 
from Padat Ram and camped there by the city. He bought the piece of land where he pitched his tent from the hands of from the hand of, of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar, and he called it El Elohim, Israel. And so we see that Jacob is in the promised land. But for some reason, Jacob picks up his tents and he travels to this Canaanite city called Shechem. And there he pitches his tent next to the city. And he buys the piece of land that he pitches tent on from the sons of Hamor, who was Shechem's father. Now, Hamar and Shechem are going to be key figures in the next chapter that we will look at. But I want you to notice what Jacob does next. The Bible says that he built an altar there where he pitched his tent. He built this altar near Shechem. And he calls it El Elohim Israel. Which literally means God, the God of Israel. Now, when I look at these verses, I see a couple of things taking place here. The first thing I see is it seems like that Jacob is planting himself physically as he buys his piece of land. He's putting down some roots. He's staking claim to the land that God had promised him. And this, what he does here is such a reminder to me of what Lot does. Where he pitched his tent next to the city and he buys his piece of land. But the second thing I see is that it seems like to me that Jacob is also not just planting himself physically, but he's planting himself spiritually. You see, he builds this altar and he names it God, the God of Israel. And what he is doing is he is distinguishing himself apart from all the other inhabitants of the land. He is distinguishing himself as one who is a worshiper of God. He is serving and worshiping God. So, Jacob is in the promised land and it appears that he is satisfied both physically and spiritually. Now the question that I have for all of us here this morning is this. Is this what God called him to do? Is this where God called him to go? Was Shechem where God had told him to plan himself? Did God say, Jacob, I want you to go and I want you to buy a piece of land next to Shechem and I want you to pitch your tents there? Well, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 31. Look at verse 13. Look at it says. And this is what God. This is what God says to Jacob. When he is still with Laban. God says. Verse 13 says. I am the God of Bethel. Where you anointed a pillar. Where you made a vow to me. Now arise. Leave this land. And return to the land of your birth. Now, did God summons Jacob to Shechem? No. 
He didn't tell Jacob to go back to Shechem. He summoned him to go back to Bethel. But for some reason, Jacob chose, he made this decision to stop short and to plant his pitch's tent in by Shechem. Now here's what here's the thing that I see here. Shechem was but a day's journey to Bethel. It was one day's journey to Bethel. All Jacob would have had to do was to go one more day, one more day's journey. He would all he had to do was just travel one more day. And he would have been exactly where God told him to go. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, Shechem offered Jacob the attraction of a compromise. His summons was to Bethel, but Shechem, about a day's journey short of it, stood attractively at the crossroads of trade. Now, doesn't this sound a whole lot like Lot? You see, Lot looked up and he looked over all the plains of the Jordan. And he saw that it was all watered well, like the Garden of Eden and like the land of Egypt. And he chose to pitch his tents next to Sodom. Perhaps Jacob said to himself, well, I'm in the promised land. I'm in the land that God told me to go back to. And the city of Shechem looks so attractive. It looks so great. It would be a great place that I could prosper. It would be a place where I can settle down, I can raise my family, and I can worship God right here. I can go to Bethel later. I can go to Bethel later on in my life. This leads me to something I want to share with you. This leads me to the first point that I want to share with you this morning. And it is this. Delayed obedience and partial obedience is still disobedience. Delayed obedience and partial obedience is still disobedience. My daughter Jill's here, and I told her I was going to share that this morning. And it might make her cringe in her seat, because I'm here to tell you, we said that over and over to our kids. When we would tell them to do something and they wouldn't do it, or they just did partially what we told them to do, we said, listen, delay obedience, partial obedience is still disobedience. And she told me, Dad, I say that all the time to my kids. I say it all the time. Listen, we are so much like Jacob. We are so much like Jacob. So many of us think that if we just get close to doing what God tells us to do, if we just get close to it, then we're okay. God will somehow be pleased with us. He'll be okay with that. Okay, parents, let me ask you this question. You're a parent here this morning, and you ask your kids... Hey, I want you to go clean your room. I want you to go clean your room. And so they trot off. And a few minutes later, you go into the room. And what do you see? 
You see your clothes are picked up, but you see toys strung everywhere. Do you say, well, thanks for cleaning your room. No, they didn't clean their room. Let's say you go back in there and the room looks spotless. It's spotless. But then you take a few steps over to the closet door. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? One crack of that closet door. And they say, no, no, don't do that. Because as soon as you crack that door open, there's a tidal wave of stuff that comes through. Listen, we've all done that. But that is not obedience. That is not cleaning your room. There's not a parent here that you would say, I'm okay with what you did. Because you obeyed what I told you to do. No. We would not accept that as obedience. Listen. God doesn't accept it either. As obedience. God doesn't accept that as obedience. This reminds me of a story in in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15 where Saul was told by Samuel to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Samuel had told Saul, go and utterly destroy the Amalekites for what they did to the Israelites as they were returning back from Egypt. And so Saul goes off. He goes into battle. And he he destroys, he, he defeats the Amalekites. And he takes Agag, the king of the Amalekites, he captures them. And some of the people, they collect some of the choice sheep and choice oxen so they can sacrifice unto the Lord. And that night, the Bible tells us that God came to Samuel and He said, I am regretful that I made Saul king of Israel because he refuses to completely do what I commanded him to do. And so the next morning, Samuel gets up. He goes to Saul. And as Saul sees Samuel coming, he says, Blessed are those, blessed are you of the Lord. I have done what the Lord has commanded me to do. Now how in the world could he say that? How could Saul stand there and say, I have done what God told me to do? I'll tell you why he could say that. Because he didn't have the same view God had of obedience. His view was skewed. And so Samuel, being the crafty old prophet that he was, he put his hands to his ears and he says, Well then, what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? What is this lowing of the cattle that I hear? <laughs> well, Samuel, or Saul backs up and says, well, he starts making excuses and he says, Well, the people, the people took some of the choice sheep and some of the choice oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord. But then Samuel says this. He says, well, let me tell you what God told me. God told me because you, although you were small in your own eyes, I made you king over all the inhabitants of Israel. And then I gave you a mission God gave you a mission to go and utterly destroy all the Amalekites. And because you did not do that, God 
is going to take the kingdom away from you. Then I want you to see what Samuel says in verse 22 and 23. What Samuel says to Saul. This is what he says. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and its subordination is as iniquity and idolatry. What the Bible says to us right there is that disobedience to God is like the sin of divination. It's like rebellion and it's the sin of divination. It's like insubordination. It's like idolatry. God takes disobedience seriously. Now, God's not looking for us to be perfect people. We can't be perfect people. But what God is looking for is that He is looking for a people whose heart is to do exactly what He tells them to do. He's looking for us to be people who completely have a desire to obey His Word. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord goes and looks for a man who would do exactly that. And He found David, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. Jacob didn't completely obey the Lord. God had told him to go to Bethel, and he ended up in Shechem. And he thought, this is good enough. This is close enough to obey the Lord. This leads me to a second point that I want to give you this morning. And it's this. Disobedience always has its consequences. Disobedience always has its consequences. As we look at the events that transpire in chapter 34, we're going to see a direct correlation to what happens in 34 to the decision that Jacob made to stop short and to pitch his tent next to Shechem. Now, as we look at this chapter, I believe there are several lessons that God wants to teach us from this chapter as He wants to move us forward in our walk, in our journey with Him. And so let's look and see what we have to learn here from chapter 34. The first thing I want you to see, the first lesson I believe that God wants to teach us here this morning is this. The consequences of your disobedience always affects more than just you. Your consequences of your disobedience will always affect more than just you. Look at verse 1 in 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had bore to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hittite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and he lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, 
Get me this young girl from my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were in were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Now, as we look at these first five verses, one has to ask the question, why did Dinah, why did Dinah go out into the city all by herself? Why was she going out into the sinful city all alone? The Bible tells us that she went out to visit or to see the, the ladies, the women of the land. And she went out to see them. She went out to investigate them. She went out to... One, she was wondering what, what they were like. And the Bible tells us that these were the same women. These were the same women that Rebecca told Isaac. I don't want Jacob to marry. I don't want Jacob to marry these women. And so he went off and found a wife. These are the same women. Why did she go out by herself? Listen, because Jacob had made a decision not to go to Bethel, but to stop short of completely obeying God, he lived near Shechem. And so that gave Dinah an opportunity. It gave Dinah an opportunity. Now his daughter, <clears throat> she's out there in the city all alone. She should have never been out there. She should have never been out there. And if she was out there, she should have been chaperoned. It was the custom of that day that women were not to go out by themselves, but they were to be chaperoned with someone else. But that didn't happen. Maybe she went out. Maybe she was rebellious. We don't know. Maybe she just went out without Jacob knowing. We don't know that. But we, what we do know is that she was, had the opportunity to go out to the city. But when she's out there, something tragic happens. Something horrible takes place. And the Bible says that Shechem, the son of Hamor, remember him? Remember him? Yeah. The Bible says that he saw her, he took her, he lay with her by force. The ESV says he humiliated her. But listen, what we would call that today was that he raped her. He raped her. Listen, this act was a brutal act of sexual assault. But then the Bible says that Shechem begins to smooth it over somehow. Smooths it over. Smooths this act over by speaking tenderly to her. Telling her how much she loves her. That he's attracted to her. And then he even has the audacity to go to his dad. Hamor says, hey, get this young girl for me as a wife. I want her as my wife. Now, I want to speak to the young ladies here in this room. I just want to say a couple things to you. If you ever come across a guy like this, 
my advice to you is to turn around and run as fast and as far as you can. Because a guy like this is not a man and will never be a man unless God changes him. A guy like this is an animal. That's exactly what Shechem was. Now, it might, some commentators say this might have been the custom of the day for a guy to go out to forcibly put himself upon a woman and then that would force them to marry Mary. I don't care if it was the custom of the day. It was still wrong. It's still wrong. It doesn't matter what the custom is. In God's eyes, it was wrong. And so, guys, young guys here, if you act like this, you're not a man. You have no respect for the gift that God has given us in women. Don't be like this. But then we come to the perhaps the most saddest part of this whole story. And it's Jacob's response in verse 5. Notice what, how Jacob responds. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled, Shechem had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But, the, but his sons were in, or with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. The Bible says that Jacob kept silent. He kept silent. Why? Moses, I think, makes the point to us that he was waiting for his sons to return back from the field. His sons were out watching his livestock, and so he waited. He kept silent, waiting for his sons to come back. What in the world was Jacob doing? could Jacob keep silent? Why isn't Jacob outraged at what has happened? Why doesn't he act on behalf of his daughter, Dinah? Instead, he keeps silent. It seems to me that Jacob had abdicated his responsibility to his sons. And he is just waiting for them to return from the field. In fact, let's look and see what happens next? Verses 6 through 17. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take, and, and, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land will be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you, you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according to you as you, you say to me. 
but give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah, their daughter, their sister. They said to, he, they said to, to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister be one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you become, be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. We will take our daughter and go. Hamor, the father Shechem, began to negotiate with Jacob. Face to face. But then, who shows up? Jacob's sons show up. Now, I want you to notice. I want you to notice the stark contrast between the reaction of Jacob and the reaction of the sons. The sons were, they were outraged. The sons were grieved. They became angry and outraged over what had taken place. But their father had kept silent. Just the opposite. A stark contrast in how the two respond. Now why? Why did the sons respond the way they did? They responded the way they did because they saw it for what it was. They saw this act by Shechem against their sister. It was a disgraceful act of brutality. Not only against their sister, Dinah, but also against the fledgling nation of Israel. <laughs> they said, this, what you did was a disgraceful thing in Israel. They saw it for what it was. Now, this leads me to another lesson I think that we can learn. And it's this. When a father advocates his leadership role to someone else, bad things might happen. When you as a father advocate your God-given responsibility to lead, then someone else is going to lead. And it could lead to some bad things. Listen, dads, if you are a father here this morning, we, you, have the responsibility to lead your family. It is your responsibility. It is no one else's. God's going to hold you responsible to lead your family. But if you choose not to lead your family, you choose to advocate that to someone else, I'm going to tell you, someone else will go, is going to lead. Someone will lead your family. Someone or something will lead your family. And the results of that might be tragic. Listen, Jacob's passivity in leading his family and refusing to do the right thing in this situation allowed evil to triumph. But it also created a leadership vacuum within his family, which was immediately and sinfully filled by his angry 
sons. And so we see that Hamor speaks up and it's almost like he begins to beg Jacob and his sons. Give, give, this, give your sister, give your daughter to my son Hamor. Why? Oh, he loves her so much. He loves her. And in verse 8 it says that his soul was longing for their daughter. So please give him there. Give, it, give her to him. Now, whether or not this was true love or not is really not the point. But the one thing that we do know is that as Hamor and Shechem are speaking to Jacob and his sons, it's almost like they totally forgot about the act of rape. It's almost like they didn't even pay attention to what Shechem had done. And so to sweeten the pot a little bit, he, they proposed this intermarriage agreement. You take our daughters, we'll take your daughters. And you can live with us in the land, you can prosper, you can have all this stuff, and we can, get, we can be one people, one people. Then Shechem, he kind of adds his two cents worth here. And he says, whatever you want me to give you, whatever bridal payment you want, I'll give it to you. It's almost like he gives him a blank check. And then you can have a gift on top of that. It's almost like a signing bonus, Shechem says. Just give her to me and you can have this. How could they refuse such an offer? But notice the response. Notice the response. First of all, I want you to notice who responds. Then I want you to notice how they respond. Who responds? The sons of Jacob respond. Jacob doesn't respond. The sons respond. But how do they respond? They respond by deceit. They were deceitful in how they responded. Now, the old acorns didn't fall very far from the tree, did it? Sure didn't. Once again, we see that Jacob has advocated his responsibility. And they said, the sons of Jacob said, we cannot do this thing. They get the right answer here, but they give it for the wrong reason. Notice what they said, why they couldn't do it. Because this would, this would be a disgrace, not to God, but this would be a disgrace to us, personally. There was no mention of God at all. There was no mention that they were God followers and they were God worshipers. It was all about what it would make them look like. How it would make them look. And so, they counter back. They give their own proposal. Become like us. Every man among you be circumcised like we are circumcised. And then we will agree to your, your terms. Now, do you see what's going on here? Do you really see what's going on here? The very sign that God gave Abraham and his offspring that would be used to set them apart from all other people and the same sign that would be an everlasting sign of a covenant between God and His people 
they were now using it and abusing it as an instrument to afflict revenge. They were going to use circumcision as an affliction, an instrument to afflict revenge. Now, when we look at this proposal from the brothers, there seems to be a lot of irony here. There just seems to be some irony here. Because the very bodily instrument that Shechem used to defile Dinah was going to be the very bodily instrument that would defile and totally wipe out the Shechemites. These brothers knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. Now notice what they say in verse 17. This is interesting. Verse 17, they say, But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll go. We're going to take Dinah and we're just going to go. That's what they should have done in the first place. It's almost like they were playing baseball and they said, Listen, if you don't play by our rules, we're taking our bat, we're taking our ball, and we're going home. Well, how does Hamar and Shechem respond to these terms? Look at verse 18. Now the words seem reasonable to Hamar and Shechem. Hamar's son. The young man did not delay to do this the thing. I mean, Shechem, right there on the spot, man, he did it. He did it. Because he was he had a delight for Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us, therefore let them live in the land. Take trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them, only on this condition. Will let the men consent to us and live with us and to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them that they will live, they will live with us. And all who went out from the gate of the city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of this, the gate of the city. It's interesting here that verse 18 starts off with the, these words. Now the words seemed reasonable to Hamar and Shechem. What's reasonable about that? Is there a man here that you would say, that sounds pretty reasonable to me? No, I don't think so. But <clears throat> Why did it seem reasonable to Hamar and Shechem? I'll tell you why. Because their lustful desires overrode their logical discernment. Their lustful desires overrode their logical discernments. You look at verse 19, and it says that Shechem immediately was circumcised. Why? Because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He wanted her so bad that he was willing to do it. And then, down in verse 23, Hamar and Shechem 
that basically they said to all the people, will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? They'll be ours now. They had a desire to gain more stuff. Listen, this leads us to the next lesson I believe God wants us to learn. And it's this. When your desires override your logical discernment, you don't care what it will cost you to get what you want. When you have such a strong desire to get something, it doesn't matter what it's going to cost you. You'll pay whatever price to get it. Why is it that a man who is married for 10, 15, 20 years, who has a great wife, has a great family, is willing to throw that all away for one, one night stand with a woman? Why is it when someone who has to provide food for his family and is just barely making ends meet will take their whole paycheck and they'll go and they'll blow it at a casino. Why will someone be willing to pay that kind of cost, that, that kind of price? I will tell you why. It's because they have a, a desire within them, a simple desire to get what they want so bad that they're willing to pay whatever cost. They're willing to give it all up to get what they want. And that's exactly what we see in Hamar and Shechem. They, it didn't matter what the cost was. They were willing to do whatever it took. They were willing to convince all the guys in their city to follow them. Well, what happens next? Look at verse 25. Now, it came about on the third day when they were in pain. <laughs> that's an understatement. The two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unaware and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword, and they took Dinah from Shechem's house, and they went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, they took the herds, their, their donkeys, that which was in the city and that which was in the field, and they captured and looted all their wealth and all the little ones with their wives, even all that was in the houses. And so, this whole plan might have perhaps been cooked up by Simeon and Levi. They were the only two full brothers of Dinah. Listen, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that on the third day after circumcision, that these guys, these men, would be easy prey for them. And so what do they do? They take their swords. They come to the city unaware. They slaughter every male. And then they go and they find Hamor and Shechem and they murder them. They murder them. But notice that Moses points out to us that they reverse the actions of Shechem. Notice what he says. It says, when they came, with the, they, they killed him with the edge of the sword, that they took Dinah from Shechem's house. She was captured 
And she was, she had kept, she was kept a prisoner in Shechem's house. As Shechem saw Dinah, he took her. As the sons, Simeon and Levi came, they took Dinah. They reversed the action. And they defiled the city. They exacted revenge on the entire city. Listen, the punishment that they poured out clearly did not fit the crime that had been betrayed to them. The ancient law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, had really been trampled on by these two brothers. There was no equity at all, only revenge in this act. It's true that two wrongs never make a right. Here's another lesson for us to learn from this, this chapter. When you take vengeance in your own hands, it leaves no room for, for true justice. And it leaves you off in a worse off state than before. When you and I try to take revenge for something that's been wronged by we've been wronged by, it leaves no room for true justice. It leaves no room for something to be done right, for the situation to be be right. Listen, someone has said this. Hatred and revenge is like burning down your own house to try to get rid of a rat. You want to get back so bad. You want to get rid of it so bad that you're willing to burn down your own house. Listen, if only these brothers could have forgiven Shechem of his sin, none of this would have happened. Forgiveness goes a long way in healing hurts. And that's why the Apostle Paul clearly tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, do not pay evil back with evil. Do not take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Listen, God can do a better job than we can do in exacting vengeance. He can do a better job than we can do. And when He exacts vengeance, it's always just. It's always just. Well, the story closes with these last two verses. 30 and 31. Notice what they say. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, Huh, Jacob's speaking. Where have you been, Jacob? He's finally going to speak. He says... To Simeon and Jacob, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed. I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot. It seems like Jacob is all, all Jacob is worried about is his own reputation. All Jacob was worried about was his reputation. His ego was hurt 
And the only thing that he worried about was his lowly standing now among the inhabitants of the land. Listen, his simple response is highlighted by the use of me, my, and I. No less than eight times he uses me, my, and high. Er, me, my, and I in these eight, in these two verses. Never mind the fact that his daughter Dinah was raped. Never mind the fact that his sons abused the right of circumcision or that they had went out and slaughtered the whole city. All Jacob was concerned about was himself. What was going to happen to him? This leads us to the last lesson I think that God wants to teach us from this, from this chapter. When self dominates your life, fear will drive you with little to no concern for others. When self dominates your life, fear will drive you with no or little concern to others. If all that we are concerned about is ourself in this life, if all we want to make sure is that we're okay, and we have it okay, then we are probably a person who is driven by fear. You are most likely a person who is driven by fear in your life. Because what that indicates about you is that you are more concerned about you than anybody else. And once again, we see a stark contrast between Jacob and his two sons, Simeon and Levi. Because Jacob, all he was concerned about was himself, but what they were concerned about was how their sister, what this made their sister look like. What a tragedy this story is. What a horrible tragedy this is. One has to wonder this question. If Jacob would have just traveled one more day to Bethel, would any of this have happened? One more day. If he would just have been obedient, completely obedient to what God told him to do, would any of this have ever happened? This leaves us in a very low, low spot. when we read this chapter. But I don't want to leave us there because God never wants to leave us in that kind of condition. And so I'm going to infringe upon Dylan a little bit in his verses next week. And I want us to look at the next chapter. 35, verse 1. And notice what it says. Then God God hadn't been mentioned anywhere in chapter 34. In all the tragedy that had taken place there. But then God shows up. As He always does in our life. When we're filled with tragedy and hurt and pain, God shows up. Amen. Then God said to Jacob, Arise! Go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there 
make an altar to God there. Even in the midst of Jacob's disobedience and the consequences of his disobedience, God, by His grace, comes to Jacob and calls him to get up and to go to Bethel. Get up, Jacob. Go to Bethel. Do what I told you to do. Build an altar there and worship me there. Despite Jacob's simple disobedience, God was faithful to move Jacob forward in the plan that he had for Jacob's life. Listen, that is good news to all of us here this morning. That's good news. Because when we are disobedient to God, many times we feel like, well, God's through with me now. I've disobeyed the Lord, and He's through with me. But that's not the case. Perhaps you're here this morning and you find yourself in some disobedience to the Lord. God has told you to do something. God has told you to, to go someplace. God has revealed Himself in some way that He wants you to, to follow Him. And the consequences of your disobedience are all around you. I want you to know that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God who is our God, calls out to us he calls out to you, and He says to you, Arise, get up, and go to Bethel. Go to Bethel and worship Me there. Go and be obedient to Me. Completely obedient to Me. And worship Me there. If somehow you find yourself disobedient to God, it's not over. God is calling you to get up. And to go to Bethel. He wants us all to be obedient people. He wants us to follow Him with obedience in our lives. And one of the ways God asks us to be obedient to Him is through gathering together and observing the Lord's Supper together. And so that's what we want to do this morning. God asks us when we gather together and we observe the Lord's Supper, that we are to do several things. We are to remember what Jesus did for us, the price that He paid for us at the cross. And as we gather together and we observe the Lord's Supper together, it also says that we this is a time that we are proclaiming to the world around us the death of Christ and how He paid His price. He paid the price for our sin for everyone. And so that's what we want to do this morning. So as we gather together, let's pray and let's be obedient. And let's follow the Lord as we observe the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, God, despite where we're at, we might be at in our lives, You are always faithful. You don't look at us as being someone who You can't come to. Because we have disobeyed you, but you call us to get up and to go and to be obedient to you. And this morning as we gather and we observe the Lord's Supper, Lord, we want to remember the great price that was paid for us through the cross. As Jesus gave of himself 
His body was beaten and bruised for us. His blood was shed for us. And Lord, we want to remember and proclaim the death of Christ to a dying world around us. And so as we do this, Lord, may we search our hearts. May we see God. May this be a true act of worship to you. And we pray that you will be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. So I invite you to come this morning to the table. This is for believers. This is the believers. Lord's Supper. And so if you are not a believer here this morning, I invite you to stay seated and to take Jesus. Receive Jesus as your Savior. But let's come and let's worship. Let's continue to worship the Lord.